Well, please open your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians, the first chapter. We are at the beginning of what I think is going to become an epic study for our own souls in this book of theology, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I can only tell you what I am experiencing in small part each week as I'm able to study the verses in this first chapter. I'm... um, I'm literally blown away that every phrase, every word is so pregnant with meaning and ready to just give birth in our imaginations to think so, so much clearer about God's grace, so much clearer about God's inclination and the way he thinks towards sinners like us. We're in the middle of a two-part series on looking at redemption, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Looking specifically at verses 7 and 8. Let me read those for you. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom, and in all insight. One of the most enigmatic and at the same time beautiful stories in all of the pages of Scripture finds itself in such an unusual place and such unusual circumstances. Listen to how the book of Hosea opens up. Hosea 1-2, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Not only was Hosea called by God to be his mouthpiece, not only was Hosea called by God to be a man of God, not only was Hosea called by God to be his voice to a rebellious generation, God asks Hosea to have a life and a marriage that would be a living parable in front of the people. He called him to have a marriage in which the people would survey and observe and make conclusions about that were to be a living illustration of God's faithfulness to Israel. More specifically, the Lord commanded Hosea to marry a woman. Her name was Gomer. He took Gomer as his wife and kept a love for her that is almost inexplicable. Why? Because Gomer kept wandering into the arms of other lovers. She was a harlot, she was a prostitute, she was unfaithful. 
And yet the Lord told Hosea, keep going back after her. Keep going back after her. Don't give up on her. Bring her back again and again and again from the arms of other lovers who were violating their marriage covenant. As we found out in Hosea 1-2, God informs Hosea that he was personally serving as an illustration of himself. And Gomer, his unfaithful wife, represented God's people. The parallel was obvious. The parallel was striking. God's people were called to live a faithful relationship to their God, Yahweh. He was their God. He was faithful to them, but they were not. They violated the first commandment over and over again. They had other gods before him. Israel's history was a history of unfaithfulness. Gomer continued to cheat on Hosea over and over and over again. She left him with kids and went out in the arms of other lovers, even giving Hosea a child of her adultery. Hosea's third child was a son named Lo-Ami. Not mine! And yet, Hosea was faithful to her and faithful to this son who was born outside to one of her lovers. Why? God moved Hosea to stay in this marriage and to stay faithful to Gomer. Why? He wanted a living picture. He crafted out of Hosea a living picture of his amazing love and faithfulness to a group of people who also committed spiritual adultery and harlotry against God, were unfaithful. And Hosea serves as a picture of God's amazing redemption of this unfaithful wife named Gomer. Well, eventually, if you read the story, Gomer runs off and she doesn't come back. She had come back and come back and come back. This time she runs off and she's gone. She leaves permanently. At least that's what she thought. She's mistreated then. She's abused. Finally, she's thrown away as a useless piece of chattel to be sold on a humiliating open slave market. And then in chapter 3 of Hosea, the unthinkable and the unbelievable happens. She has left him for the final time. And her owner, her husband, actually sells her as a slave. Hosea 3.1. Then the Lord said to me, says Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Hosea then says, so I bought her. I bought my wayward wife. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you.
You feel the gravity of this story? I hope so. Hosea had to go and purchase his own unfaithful wife back. He had to pay what was called a redemption price, a ransom to bring his wayward wife home. Gomer playing the part of unfaithful Israel in this divine parable and narrative was redeemed by the relentless love of her husband Hosea, a picture of God. What does that have to do with what we're doing in Ephesians? And the answer is everything. That's the picture of what redemption is, to buy someone who's undeserving, to purchase someone who has rebelled. It's a beautiful illustration of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1.7, forgiveness and redemption. God was that way toward Israel and God is that way toward sinners who seek his grace even today. We said last week, and there's going to be a little bit of review this week as we, as we kind of ramp up to the final two points that we began of the five last week. Ephesians has been analyzed over and over as saying something like the first three chapters are doctrine, the last three chapters are practice, the first three chapters are theology, the last three chapters are application. And, and there's some truth to that structurally, but be careful thinking that a study of theology doesn't have practical implications or that practical living doesn't have theological foundings and rootings. All theology is practical and all Christian practice should be theological. We are to never then separate our knowing from our doing or our doing from our knowing. That brings us to verse 7 of chapter 1. Remember, verse 7 is in the middle of of the section from verse 3 to verse 14, which is the longest Greek sentence in the New Testament. It's broken up by different sentences and, and um, uh, punctuation in the English translation. It's just one run-on Greek sentence in the original. And it is loaded. I, I, I kid you not, every word, every phrase is loaded and worthy of multiple weeks of study. Paul begins by saying, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the place he starts is saying, you were predestined, adopted by God, the work of God intercepted a sinful life, his grace abounded to the praise of the glory of his inclination, his grace, to save sinners who would not have otherwise been saved. Based on chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, therefore, no one is able to respond in life to God in faith. So God predestined some to believe. That led us into a five-week hiatus or a little bit of a study on the doctrines of sovereign grace, which we gave attention to. And now we're back in the flow of the exposition, picking up in verse 7. We began last week by noticing that in these two verses, there are five insights into the wonder of Christian redemption. What we see in Hosea is God's redeeming heart. He redeemed Israel as Homer was redeemed by Hosea. The unfaithful redeemed by the faithful. That idea of redemption in Hosea is a, an apt illustration of what's happening here in Ephesians 1 verses 7 and 8. 
where we are redeemed as Christians, bought back from our slavery to sin, our unfaithfulness against God. And he talks about this wonder of Christian redemption. So that we looked at these first three insights last week. Let me briefly go over the first three and then we'll isolate our attention to the last two. First, the source of our redemption, which is Christ himself. This is not an abstract principle, not something that God gives us that's a commodity. This is the living, resurrected person of Jesus. In him, we have redemption. Him is Christ in the context. It highlights the glories of God's grace. Look at what Paul is talking about as a a general overview back in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Don't ever let that phrase slip your imaginations and your worship. What God has given us is so that we would praise the magnitude, the magnificence, the glory of his disposition, his grace, his givingness. We notice that in him, Christ himself, he's the source of our our redemption, that there is no redemption without a redeemer. Some of us, at least those in my generation, grew up singing Keith Green's favorite song, There is a Redeemer. Boy, when you sing that, let this verse ring in your mind. There is a redeemer. The redeemer gave redemption. Redemption without the redeemer is just a theological abstraction. This came from him, in him. And then we noticed last time that in him identifies our identity. No identity you and I ever have, will ever have, is greater than in him, being in Christ. We will come back to this phrase over and over again in our study of Ephesians. No matter what you want to be known for, known as, or known by, no identity will ever supersede this, that you are in Christ as a believer. That phrase occurs about 164 times in Paul's writings. It is one of his favorite designations of believers, in Christ, in him. And it, rooted, it roots itself in the theological foundation of 2 Corinthians 5.17. You probably have it memorized. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, a new creature. Old things passed away, new things have come. Completely a new person. So then, a believer's sense of belonging, a believer's sense of worth, a believer's sense of value, acceptance, love, contentment, ultimately must be found by being in Christ, owned by Christ, redeemed by Christ, having a relationship with Christ. The theological reality of redemption is connected, though, to a payment. It's interesting that Hosea had to pay a price for his own wife. He bought her, even though she was his. He bought her, even though she was unfaithful. And Paul next takes us to the price of our redemption. What God paid for you. And the price of our redemption is Christ's sacrificial death. In him we have been redeemed. We have redemption. How? Through his blood. And we noticed last week and noted that 
Jesus didn't just bleed on the cross. It wasn't contrary to some Catholic notions, his, the corpuscles that actually were redeeming or sal salvific. Blood means death. Our redemption was not cheap. It was Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. That comes from Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Did you hear that? Blood by reason of the life. Not just bleeding, but the loss of life. It's death. And then the writer of the Hebrews picks up that concept from Leviticus 17 in Hebrews 9, 22. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why? Because for there to be forgiveness, there must be a price paid for that forgiveness, for that redemption, and the price is life, either yours or Christ's. That's why 1 Timothy 2.6 says, he gave himself as a ransom he gave himself as a ransom. That's the blood-bought price of redemption. He paid the redemption price with his blood. Which is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, everything that's valuable, from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished, the, unblemished, the spotless blood of Christ. Don't, I would beg you, don't ever cease to be amazed by what God did to pay for your redemption. What Christ sacrificed as the payment for your redemption. Hosea bought Gomer back with a little bit of money and some food. God bought you as a believer in Jesus Christ. He bought you with the price of the death of his son. That led us thirdly to look at the result of our redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Gomer got her marriage back. We get eternity back. Pretty amazing. The result of our redemption is the forgiveness of sin. That's why he says in verse 7, in him we have redemption. Then he parenthetically says, through his blood. And then this is a, an appositive or an apposition. Redemption and the forgiveness of sins are synonyms. We have redemption. In other words, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's plural. It's the word for sins. Our many and multiple. Forgiveness is the same as redemption. Redemption. I love the fact that we have a God who forgives. Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Who is like you? Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. Listen, it wasn't like the gods of the ancient Near East. They couldn't grant redemption. They couldn't be sought for forgiveness. They had to be manipulated and cajoled 
not Yahweh, not the God of the Hebrews, not Jesus on behalf of God. We also looked at the fact that if you are forgiven, forgiven people do what? They forgive. Forgiven people forgive. We'll come back to this uh, in chapter 4 just as Paul as just turns the key so very carefully. Be kind, chapter 4, verse 32 in Ephesians, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So we forgive because we're forgiven. And we're forgiven, therefore we are always seeking to forgive, to be gracious. Why? Because that's being like God. Paul will tell the Ephesians in just a few chapters, be imitators of God. Is there any way to imitate God more specifically than to forgive those who have violated your friendship, violated their faithfulness to you? No. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And we said last week, forgiven people are forgiving people. Psalm 130, if you should mark our Iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Therefore, we are forgivers. Well, that brings us now to some new insights. Let's go now to number four of the five insights into the wonder of Christian redemption. The reservoir. Reservoir for our redemption. The wealth of God's grace. Let me just tell you before we dive into this, this... This is going to be like a two-year-old trying to dunk a basketball. Or I could say like me trying to dunk a basketball. There's, there's just no way to do what's in this verse and to make it as, as infinitely precious and as infinite as, as it is. How do you describe infinity? Well, we're going to try. So just hold on with me. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Try to put the ocean in a Dixie cup. That's what it's like to describe what's going on here. One of the most consequential sins that any man or woman can ever commit is found in Psalm 50 where God tells the people, you thought I was just like you. God says, you thought I was like you. I was just like you. There's something important here that is a game changer for your thinking and for your theology, for mine. All of us tend to project our understanding of forgiveness, our understanding of forgiveness, redemption, grace to God. But listen, God's gracious redemption and forgiveness are in no way like the way you think. You have no category. You have nothing that can compare this in a way that's meaningful. Let's look closer at God's nature and disposition then as the Redeemer. 
It says, this is incredible. Look at the words. God does not give redemption out of his riches. He gives forgiveness and redemption according, according to his riches. Think of it like this. Let's say there were a wealthy multimillionaire you had met. I don't know how he told you how much money he had, but you know. At the time of your meeting with this multimillionaire, you had a rough month and you needed money to pay your electric bill to keep the lights on. If the rich man gave you the money to pay the electric bill, that would be kind, but he would be giving something to you out of his riches. See that? Not according to his riches. But think of this, if this happened. The rich man becomes aware of your needs, that you can't pay your electric bill. But instead of paying your electric bill, he pays all of your bills and then plants $100 million into your checking account. See the difference? There's a difference between granting something out of your riches than there is granting according to your riches. Notice the text. He gave us forgiveness. He gave us redemption according to the wealth, the riches of his grace, which begs the question, how much grace does God have? How wealthy is God's gracious reservoir? God's forgiveness is not measured out by the yard or by the ton or by the truckload. God's forgiveness is measured by the riches of his grace. Psalm 86, 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Abundant, overwhelming in the Hebrew word is hesed, loving kindness. I love the word hesed because if you look in Halot, Hebrew and Aramaic dictionary of the, of the lexicon of the Old Testament, it's about three pages in my dictionary, the word hesed, loving kindness. We had to make up a word, loving kindness. It's not even a word. We made it up to try to grab what hesed is, which is the same New Testament equivalent as grace or the riches of God's grace. It just means the overwhelming disposition of kindness in the face of treachery. Just like Hosea and Gomer. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a merciful God, are a God merciful and gracious, rather. Slow to anger, overwhelming, abundant in loving kindness and faithfulness or truth. Look down the page at Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays, he's, we're going to get here in just a few weeks. I pray that the eyes of your heart, you may not have known your heart has eyes, but it does. The eyes of your heart, your understanding, be enlightened so that you will then know what is the hope of his calling and you will know what are the riches of his glory, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Look over for a second. Flip the page to Ephesians 3, verse 8. 
Paul says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the, now in other words, unfathomable riches of Christ. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. That God would grant you according, not out of, according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. He sees God in the book of Ephesians as wealthy with, with kind, gracious, good, glorious inclinations. Now back up to chapter 2 for a minute. I can't wait to get here, but just look at chapter 2 for a moment. But God, being what in mercy? What's the word? Being what in mercy? Rich, rich in mercy because of his, what kind of love? Great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that, look, look at this, in the ages to come, in out, throughout eternity, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace, wealth of his grace, abundance of his grace, loving kindness of his grace, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I was thinking about this just this past week and how different God is than us. Can you, can you imagine? There are sadly places in our city that are homeless camps, people living under overpasses, people living in tents, people who are homeless, living in cardboard and fabric shelters. Back to our multimillionaire friend. A multimillionaire does not typically intentionally walk through that camp, that homeless camp, with clear bags of cash hanging off both of his arms. Does he? We would look at that and that would say, that, that would be foolish because people would want what you have to give them. Our God does that. In the poverty and in the desperation of our lives, in the homeless shelter spiritually of our existence, he comes with abundance and wealth and riches of mercy and grace and glory and says, do you want this? What kind of fool would say, nah, I'm good. But there's more. Look at the next phrase which he lavished on us. Can I just say it for you? Ace. Eperuse. Ace hemas. The Greek is incredible. Which he lathered, overwhelmed, drenched us with. The word lavish is a really good translation of this. He didn't just give out of, 
He gave according to, he smothered and lathered us with forgiveness and redemption. With his grace. He drenched us. He's lathered us. Saturated us with grace and forgiveness. God is not a reluctant forgiver. You and I typically are. Oh, I'll forgive you, but you better, better not ever violate me again, right? Aren't you glad God is not like that? Because all of us, after our initial forgiveness as believers, still had moments, still have moments of unfaithfulness, do we not? Every sin is that moment of unfaithfulness. This just, he lavished on us, just oozes with the nature and character of God. Just look at this for a moment. Go back to Exodus chapter 34. You know what's going on in Exodus 34. In Exodus 33, God says, I mean, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And the Lord answers, I will show you my goodness. And he'll, he'll, um, in verse, chapter 33, actually, he says, I will be gracious, verse 19, to whom I will be gracious, show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So the next day, Moses, one of the most incredible scenes in all the Bible, he says, show me your glory. He says, I'm gonna hide you in the rock and I'm gonna proclaim to you my name. So the next day, Moses gets some tablets because he broke the other ones, throwing them at the bottom of the mountain because of the, uh, the celebration of the golden calf. And he goes back up and meets with God. And God, the, the Hebrew is incredible. God puts him, we, we sing and talk about the cleft of the rock as if it's this little, little, uh, little uh, indentation. No, God puts him in the rock where there's probably in the rock and only a little crack to look through. He says, I'll, I'll tell you something tomorrow. I'll show you my glory. We know that he sh- showed him his glory and Moses saw his backsides afterglow the wake of his glory but we don't know much of what Moses saw we do know what he heard and this is what he heard in Exodus 34 verse 6 then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed Moses wanted to see God's glory God said I'm going to tell you my glory because what I say is more important than what you see and what I say is transmittable now someday we will all see the glory of God Revelation 4 and 5 explain that. But right now, we're living on, living on his word, which is by faith. This is what he said. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, listen to his inclination. Compassionate. That's what the Lord is like. Gracious. Slow to anger. We've talked about this before. One of my favorite Hebrew words, slow to anger, it means long-nosed. The Lord has a long nose. You say, what does that mean? Because when you get angry, your nose shortens and you squish it up. The Lord doesn't do that. Slow, slow to be angry. Abounding, overwhelming, lavishing in loving kindness and truth or faithfulness who keeps that loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, forgives transgression, forgives sin. And then after all of that, after all of that, he says, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You stack all that up, 
and we find out what Paul is telling us. God is so inclined to be gracious. If you don't believe that, feel your pulse. You're alive. And we shouldn't be. Back to Ephesians. Don't ever, don't ever underestimate God's grace. Our reservoir is the wealth of God's grace, which is infinite, unsearchable, that he just lathers and lavishes on those who seek it. Perfect logic. Next we come to the fifth insight into the wonder of Christian redemption, the comprehension of it, the comprehension of Redemption, our redemption, awareness of God's workings. Look how it climaxes. i give you a little bit of a Greek lesson here, okay? In him we have redemption through his blood, verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. And our text says, in all wisdom and insight. That little Greek preposition can be translated in, with, or by. So you could say what you lavished on us with all wisdom and insight, which is the way I, I, I think it's better to take it here. I think the in wisdom and insight applies to this phrase, not in verse uh, uh, 9 as many take it. You can't get in trouble theologically either way, but I think the grammar supports that it's talking about our understanding of grace and forgiveness and redemption. This enlightenment, this wisdom and insight is an important theme in the rest of Paul's long sentence. That's what he prays for as we looked at earlier. He prays for the eyes of our heart to be opened, that we would be enlightened, that we would have wisdom and insight. So not only is a believer lavished with God's grace, we're also given Wisdom and insight. Now, what, what are wisdom and insight? Let's break that down. Wisdom is Sophia. It points to the ultimate understanding of things. It's, it's the wisdom of thinking about life and death and heaven and hell and big decisions and, and life worldview issues. God and man, righteousness and sin, heaven and hell, eternity and time. He's speaking when he says wisdom of those things about our spiritual blessings that we should know. He's given us Wisdom and insight to know what God is doing, what God has done, which is not visible or tangible to the human senses. Not only Sophia, he's given us phronesis, insight. That's a little different than wisdom. It's more practical. It points to a a simple understanding, a life understanding, a practical understanding, comprehension of the needs, problems, and principles of everyday life. It's the spiritual prudence of handling daily affairs. So what he's given us in wisdom and insight is big issues and small issues, eternal issues and temporal issues. We can figure out life, in other words. That's massive. That's incredible. Comprehending our redemption gives us a worldview fundamentally different than anyone else on the planet as Christians and allows us to think differently, which causes us then to live 
differently, with different values. This world is not our home. We're living as strangers and aliens. We see things differently than does the world. Notice also that there's a taking and a giving here. In forgiveness and redemption, he takes away something. He takes away our sin. And in giving us insight and wisdom, he gives us something. Put off, put on. Take away, give. I can't resist. I I, I can't resist. The next sentence in the Greek, it begins in verse 15. I've already alluded to this. Look at verse 15. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that exists among you, your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of Sophia, of wisdom and of revelation. How do you get this wisdom? In the knowledge of of him. Can you just pump the brakes there for a minute? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give you this wisdom and insight by knowing who Jesus is, what he said, what he taught, what he's like. Then he says, I pray, we looked at this earlier, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with, remember according to, the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ah, now we're finding out something more. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above the rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It was the resurrection of Jesus and the power that brought him back to life that grants you a worldview that changes your life, that gives you hope, security, meaning, that solves your fears. So wisdom and insight... Macro, micro, big worldview issues, daily issues of where you're going to park, all have theological implications. You say, come on, how does where I park have theological implications? Well, interesting you asked me that because I was thinking about this yesterday morning when I was uh, studying and went to High V as every dutiful husband should do for their wife when she asks them. Just make sure that she takes pictures of what you're going to get because I bring the wrong things home. But that's another time. So I'm thinking, I'm noodling on this and I'm thinking about the big things and little things in parking places. And I was shocked, shocked at the implication. This is not a command, this is a testimony, okay? Just, just for the record. So typically, I drive to High V, and I'm trying to find the closest and the best parking spot. You know why? Because I want the closest and the best parking spot. 
I mean, God forbid that I would have to carry my little plastic bag, you know, out there. Isn't it interesting how a 50-yard walk at Hy-Vee seems like a long way, but a 50-yard walk at Royal Stadium doesn't seem like very far. Anyway, that's another perspective-altering moment. So I, there was a good spot. There was a lady behind me and a good spot, like, n- number two. And I was like, what a God. This is a great parking space. He is smiling on me. And remember, I'm chewing on this all morning, this Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. And it dawned on me, now wait a minute. Would it serve her to have that parking spot? And then I had this constant uh, crisis of conscience, like in the Hy-Vee parking lot. Well, is this a blessing or, or should I serve? Is, is this a... And I did what I thought my wife would do, so I drove around and let her have it. Now, that's not to make me a hero. It's just to say that little... And it's not to say you can't have a good parking spot. <laughs> it is to say that every decision has theological implications, doesn't it? Doesn't every decision influence that? Please don't go out and say, well, I got to have a bad parking spot every time because Pastor Rick said, park at the end of the parking lot. Now, you may need the steps, but that's another sermon. What are the takeaways from this? Takeaways. Listen, God has given us what we need to combat any depression. Any depressing thought. Any guilt every source of condemnation, he has given us what we need. We truly have sufficiency in the gospel. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That sounds like wisdom and insight, doesn't it? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through true knowledge of him. It goes back to the same issue. Knowing Jesus. Another takeaway. God has given us what we need to think better and to think rightly. And he calls us to think differently and more theologically than we do without spiritual eyes and enlightened eyes. And also, God offers forgiveness out of the abundance of his infinite infinite grace. If you know Christ, you've tasted this. If you don't, what a grace that you're here today to hear that God is abounding, abounding, overwhelming in grace, that he grants forgiveness and redemption according to the riches of his grace, which is infinite. He offers you salvation today. You can turn from your sins, turn to the Savior. He will forgive and redeem your unfaithful life, give you newness, adopt you as his child, his son or daughter, and you can be saved today. Just believe. Receive his grace In his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther wrote this. Let us learn, therefore, I think I have this for you. Let us learn, therefore, in great terrors, when our conscience feels nothing but sin and judges that God is angry with us and that Christ has turned his face away from us, not 
to follow the sense and feeling of our own heart, but to stick with the word of God. Can I say to stick with Ephesians 1? Which says that God is not angry, but looks to the afflicted. He is abounding in grace. Such as are troubled in spirit, tremble at his word, and that Christ turns not himself away from such as labor and are heavy laden, but refreshes and comforts them. End quote. We sang it earlier. Can I remind you again? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. It exceeds it. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpour, there where the blood, there's the cost, the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon, grace that will cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Can you say it with me? Grace that is greater than all our sin. Is that good news? Is that, he lavished that grace on you. Swim in that today.